one of the more dangerous things I think that happens in colleges right now is if I go to a luncheon speaker and it's sort of a billionaire's parade at NYU of luncheon speakers. I would say probably a third of the people who speak at, you know, luncheon speakers are billionaires. And typically the standard epilogue or the sign off is do what you love or follow your passion. And typically the person on stage who's a billionaire telling you to follow your passion made their billions in iron ore smelting. And the notion that this person was passionate about this is just such bullshit. What most of us are passionate about is finding something we're good at, getting great at it. And once you become great at something, the financial and psychological and emotional accoutrements that come with being great at something will make you passionate around whatever it is. Thanks for pressing play. And that voice you just heard is Professor Scott Galloway. He's got a brand new book out, and we have a very big conversation today on happiness. And this is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, the podcast where we aspire to have real dialogues, not over-edited interviews that celebrate the people, ideas, and companies that stand out. And I also hope we provide you with some insights uh, that make a difference in uh, you designing a legendary career and a legendary life. As usual, we're sponsored by the good folks at Oracle NetSuite. Learn how to turbocharge the growth of your business today at netsuite.com slash different. Now, as I mentioned, Professor Scott Galloway is with us today, and this is a great conversation. He's one of the smartest business, branding, and technology thinkers and professors out there. He's from NYU, and he's also a best-selling author, entrepreneur, and podcaster. And, uh, you know, he does these incredible YouTube videos that often get a gazillion hits, and he's become a really big damn deal in the uh, social media world because he's a really smart guy. His new book is called The Algebra of Happiness. And in this conversation, he shares his insights and uh, no BS research into how to have a happier life, why the life happiness curve is a smile that dips in your 20s and 30s and trends up in your 40s and 50s. We have a conversation as well about what's going on with young men in America why he thinks that follow your passion is bullshit advice, and why the key to happiness is love. Now, go to Lockhead.com for more on Professor Galloway and his new book. Check out the show notes for this episode, and hey-ho, let's go. My first book did pretty well. So they said, okay, put out another one right away. The pump is primed. And uh, they said, uh, put out another tech book. I said, well, actually, I want to write a book on happiness. And they're like, no, 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 don't do that. So this is a sharp left turn for me. But I struggle personally with a certain level of anger and even depression. And I'm trying to manage it without drugs. And I'm trying to figure out a way to really focus on this, this art of pursuing Happiness. Anyways, probably more than you wanted, but uh, it's, it's, it's been an exploration of self-discovery and my students seem to really be receptive to, to some of the findings. I love, I love that you're doing this work. Uh, I've been on a very similar journey. It's, it's almost eerie. Uh, I retired as a CMO when I was 38 years old and have been sort of an advisor and an investor and now podcaster and author over the last couple of years. So doing new stuff and, uh, you know, as I listen to you, and consume your new shit. I, our journey sounds very familiar. You know, I worked essentially nonstop from 18 to 38, yep. 60, 80 hours a week, you know, a hundred to 400,000 air miles, the whole thing, right? Public companies, yeah. all of it. Uh, and so when I, when I, when we sold Mercury to HP, when I was 38 heading into 39, I, I made this decision, Scott, that I, I literally said this to myself, um, I like you, I went through a divorce. I, you know, I, the company went through hell and back and, you know, went through this huge life, uh, set of circumstances. And as I came out the other side, I said, you know what? I want to get a black belt in happiness in the next stage of my life. Yeah. And I've been working on that for the last, you know, 12 or 13 years. And, um, and so I'm very curious, you know, there's a lot of things that you point to. If I was somebody who said to you, Hey, I'm trying to be a happier person in life. Where would you suggest I start? 
Well, and this is sort of a ninja trick. I absolutely have an answer to that and I'll go into it. But part of my research is talking to a lot of successful people like you. Uh, let me just put it back to you. What, what are the two or three things you would observe or distill it down to? It, a, in the last 13 years, do you think of yourself as being happier than you were in your first 38? And can you identify two or three things that have driven that? Uh, so the answer is, yeah, I'm materially happier. Um I, you know, I don't know that if I, I technically be diagnosed as somewhere on the bipolar spectrum, but regardless, I have very high highs and very low lows, ADHD, dyslexia, you know, all that, all the shit mm -hmm. that a lot of us entrepreneurial types tend to have. But um, here's the here's the thing for me is understanding and, and frankly, really grappling and working with the distinction intrinsic, extrinsic motivators. And understanding what I would do just for intrinsic motivation and understanding that as a younger man, I think more extrinsically focused and now as an older man trying to be more intrinsically focused. But also, you know, for example, Scott, we had Carrie Walsh Jennings on the podcast recently and a huge fan of hers and I fell in love with her. Um, and it was very clear that Carrie has got to this wonderful place in life where it's very intrinsic for her playing volleyball and being a, a world elite Olympic champion. And at the same time, she said, hey, make no mistake, I got a bronze last time around. I'm going back for the gold. And if you want to send me the sponsorship checks, I want to cash them. And so <laughs> to me, it's finding this right, healthy mix of um, things that you're naturally drawn to that give you satisfaction regardless of any sort of external world. And mm -hmm. yet at the same time, being a competitive guy, being an entrepreneurial marketing guy, wanting to win in the marketplace, um, et cetera. There, so I'm trying to find the right, and I, balance is not the, I like you hate this balance thing. We can talk about mm -hmm. that if you like, but it's trying to find the right mix and the right things I've chosen to do between intrinsic and extrinsic and playing with that and learning about that and talking to people about that has really been helping me to develop my black belt, if you will, in happiness. But I'm curious as to your reaction. So there's a lot of research touching on, on things you said. The first is just naturally, you're just starting to enter what are, are typically the happiest years in someone's life. And that is the arc of happiness there's very robust research showing that the arc of happiness is a smile. And that is kind of zero to 22, 25 is, uh, you know, cartoons, not a lot of responsibility, playing, you know, playing, playing fort with good friends, uh, going to school, high school football games, sexual exploration, discovery of yourself, spilling into adulthood, great, friendships, you know, just in Star Wars and Planet of the Apes and marijuana and everything else that's wonderful about being a young person. Beer. <laughs> all the, yeah, right. <laughs> I can't believe we forgot beer. Anyway, so, it, you know, the, the stuff of 25 and less, especially if you're raised in the U.S. and there's a certain, and you have a certain, you're in a household that's not too stressed or there's not too much emotional or financial insecurity. Most people would report, look back on their, those years as pretty happy years. And then around 25, you know, it's what I call the shit gets real stage of your life. And that is, despite what you've been told, you're probably not going to have a fragrance named after you. You're probably not going to be senator. By the time you're in your late 20s and early 30s, you come to grips with the fact that um, you, we as a species are competitive and it's key to our evolutionary progress. But the downside of that is we will always anchor off of the most successful person in our cohort. And that is we look at the most successful person emotionally, uh, psychologically, and especially since as a young person, uh, financially and professionally, and that's the person we anchor off of. And if we're not the one person who's the most successful, we can't help but be a little bit disappointed. And then some terrible things start happening and they happen to all of us. Someone we love gets sick and dies. And kind of the reality or the harshness of life kind of hits you square in the face. Kids, while wonderful and big part of the arc over the course of your life, are stressful. The economic stress, the relational stress of managing children while trying to maintain a partnership if you're raising them with someone else is stressful. You know, divorce rates are high. Uh, you will go fi get fired at some point. Everybody knows tragedy. Everybody knows failure. 
And so those kind of years, 25 to call it 45, are generally the bottom of the smile. And that is, it's not to say you can't be happy. It's not to say that you can't, you can't live a rewarding life, but you're working it. And, and, and the world is a difficult, you know, heart, full body contact place. And then you start to come out, usually around most people, around 45 or 50, they take stock of their blessings. If you're fortunate enough to, uh, to be born in a great place like America, if you're fortunate enough to be able to make a good living, you start appreciating things. You start recognizing that our time here is finite. Hopefully by that time, you've established some very healthy relationships in your life. And you start to get happier. And the happiest people in the world are probably the people that shouldn't be, and that is seniors, because they're usually dealing with the most kind of health issues. But the arc, you know, the arc of happiness is a smile. Now, there's a bunch of stuff uh, that we can go into, the algorithms, basics. You look like a guy who's in pretty good shape. I think the quickest hit to getting um, uh, slightly or incrementally more happy is one of my algorithms is the ratio of time you spend sweating to watching other people sweat is a forward-looking indicator of your success and your happiness. So show me a woman who's on Soul Cycle five times a week and only goes to sporting events or watches them as a function of being very social with other people. I'll show you someone who's good at life. Show me a guy who watches ESPN three hours a night and then watches is on a couch all day, Saturday and Sunday, watching football and baseball. I'll show you someone who has a history or a future of failed relationships and anger. The economic security is really important. People say money can't buy you happiness. That's not true. It can, but the asterisk there is to a point. So the studies show that, that the difference between being poor and being financially secure is enormous in terms of the contribution to your happiness. But once you get to a point of economic, quote unquote, you know, moderate security, you can afford your housing, you can afford healthcare, you can afford, you can absorb a loss or a shock to the system, somebody getting sick. You have enough money to take nice vacations and you have enough money to feel like you're a decent provider for your family, which by the way, in Indianapolis is probably 80 to hundred grand a year in Manhattan. It's a half a million a year at least. So it depends where you live, what that number is. But once you get to that point, the arc of happiness flattens. And that is you don't get any happier with more money. And I think it's hard to break out of that cycle where you don't think, okay, the key is just more and more money. And I think at some point when you have a certain level of economic security, it's important to slow down and say, okay, what, what is it about the economic security and the things that affords me the opportunities to do that makes me successful? The other myth is that billionaires are less happy than millionaires. They're not. They're no happier, but they're no less happier either. That's, that's a bit of a myth. And then key to your economic security, quite frankly, and you're an exception here. It sounds like you're a very, very talented guy. And I'm talking my own book because I'm an educator, but your zip code, where you live, where you grew up, where you kind of got your training. And that is, I think everyone should move to New York or Chicago or Raleigh, Durham or Atlanta, what I call a super city or Shanghai or London, because you're competing with the best. And just as when you're on the tennis court, volleying with people who are better than you, it raises your game. Being in a super city, you're forced to raise your game. The density of grid opportunity and competition is just greater. And then the second thing is your credentialing. And that is, you know, your training, and it doesn't necessarily mean a, a Harvard MBA. It can be that you have a class three driver's license, that you're certified, a certified black belt and can teach the martial arts or you can teach yoga. But show me your zip code and your certification, and I can give you a sense for your income trajectory over the first 10, 20 years of your career. So a kid with an MBA from the Tuck School living in Boston is going to be making 150000 200000 by the time they're 30. Someone who dropped out of junior college living in a small town in Mississippi is going to be lucky if they're making 50000 And there's always going to be tropes. There's always going to be exceptions. The problem is the media has a tendency to exaggerate the Jay-Zs, the Mark Zuckerbergs, the Bill Gates of the world. But I find those two things are, are a pretty key function of your economic trajectory and then going back to the relationship uh, with happiness. So anyway, I'll, I'll stop there, Chris, but there's, a, there's about 10 or 12 kind of algorithms, if you will, or equations that I find are directly correlated to someone's happiness. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It triangulates with the reading that I've done, some of the guests we've had on, and my own life experience. If I could maybe just zero in on one, I don't know why this one speaks to me, but this notion of when you're younger, you should move to a mega city, you should move to San Francisco, to New York, to London, to Dubai, to one of these spots. Um, and what I've always said to young people is, hey, listen, there's a reason that country singers are in Nashville. 
Right. There's a reason that wannabe writers and actors go to Hollywood, and there's a reason tech entrepreneurs move to the San Francisco Bay Area. And I had that personal experience myself. The first time I came to the San Francisco Bay Area, I grew up in, in Montreal and Toronto, Canada. Um, and the first time I came to the Bay Area as a young entrepreneur in the tech business, and I drove down Highway 101, and I looked at the Oracle buildings and you know all the stuff, my eyes were gigantic. And I had that feeling like, hey, this is fucking Yankee Stadium, man. And I, yeah. need to, I need to prove to myself that I can come here and I can compete and I can be world class because, and I don't mean any disrespect to Toronto or Canada or any of that, but making it as a tech entrepreneur, as a tech marketing guy in, in Toronto is one thing. Making it in Silicon Valley is a whole other thing. That was my personal experience. That's the advice I give young people. But I'm curious why why you believe this and, and what the research tells us about this. Sure. So uh, I was recently skiing with my kids and it was fresh snow. And I thought, and I got out there and the snow conditions were just perfect. And I thought, well, I'm actually a pretty decent skier. And then two, three days later, it got icy and more difficult. And then I, the real world caught up to me. And the fact is, I'm a very mediocre skier. I go surfing with friends every year. And I can tell you how good a surfer I am based on if there's an offshore wind and it's three to five foot and they're breaking just perfectly, I can talk myself into believing I'm a decent surfer when the reality is I'm a mediocre surfer. You want to get to where the snow and the waves are great such that you have the greatest opportunity to be good at what you do. And what is, what, what is one of the key attributes of species that thrive versus species that go extinct? They're adaptable. And one of the key trainings for adaptability as a young person is forcing yourself to develop new skills around one of the greatest, the greatest tools in the history of our species, and that's migration. So you want to move to where the snow is great if you want to be a great skier, and you mentioned that there's certain areas where the snow is just very good every day for someone who's in technology. Now, you may not survive there. You may get washed up and spit out, but you're going to come out. That, those muscles are going to come out damaged, and they're going to grow back stronger. And then when you move back to Indianapolis or St. Louis, having been okay at tech in San Francisco is going to make you one of the better tech entrepreneurs in St. Louis or Indianapolis and provide you with opportunities, perspective, the ability to make contacts, the ability to be insecure and lonely and overcome those things and know that you're stronger. And then there's just basic economics and demographics. And that is that two thirds of the GDP growth uh, over the next 30 years is going to happen in a small number of super cities. So you want the wind at your back. I mean, show me, show me an entrepreneur, a decent entrepreneur in a good economy. I'm going to show you someone who makes more money than someone who's a great entrepreneur in a mediocre economy. And over the next 30 years, when you move, when you have the opportunity to move to a great economy, which is likely going to be one of these, these super cities, you're just putting the wind at your back. You're skiing on better snow. You're surfing with better waves. So, you know, just I, I advise, a lot of my younger friends, students are thinking about where do I meet a mate? And I'm saying, oh, you want the numbers to be in your favor. If you're a single guy, you want to be in New York or Miami because in New York, there's two and a half single women for every single guy. So when my friends complain about their girlfriends, I'm like, okay, on a risk-adjusted scorecard of character, looks, and professional success, dude, you're a six. And you are dating eights and nines. You move to another city, and you're going to be shocked just how unattractive you are relative to the marketplace. <laughs> I think the opposite is true in San Francisco. Tech tends to over-index on males, and so there are more kind of uh, uh, attractive, uh, interesting males, just sheer demographics, than females. So when my sister graduated from business school, she said, I'm going to move to New York. I said, there's absolutely no way I'm letting you move to New York. You head to San Francisco. Because you want to put yourself in an environment where if you're good, you're great. And a lot of kids, unfortunately, are in marketplaces where even if they're great, they get the accoutrements of being good. So 100% get to a city. And here's the thing, Chris, you can't, you know, once you get to our age and you start collecting things like dogs and kids and spouses, you don't have the opportunity or maybe the economics to move to Shanghai or Dubai. It's just not an Once option. You get to a place where you're like, ah, fuck it. It's too fucking hard. You know, when it's you're 23 much. or 25 or 28 or whatever, it's like, you know, I mean, I moved from Montreal to Toronto and then Toronto to Silicon Valley, and those were easy jumps, you know. 
Today yeah. I live in beautiful Santa Cruz, California. And if you said to me, hey, there's this awesome opportunity for you in Miami, I could give, there's not a, I don't care what it is. There's not a chance oh. I'm fucking moving to Miami. I am, I'm not going yeah. anywhere. <laughs> yeah, well, Santa Cruz, that's, that's good living. But you have figured it out. You're in a position now where you have the currency to have a nice career in a place like Santa Cruz. A young person, they get a job in Santa Cruz and that job doesn't work out. They've got two or three other options. When you're in San Francisco as a tech, a young tech person, if it didn't work out, you had 20 or 30. That's right. Um, other, other potential, other potential options. Also right out of UCLA, I, I took a job at Morgan Stanley investment banking in New York because that's what you know you were supposed to do in the eighties or late eighties. There were three of us in a one bedroom paying $1,900 a month. And as long as we had money to, you know, go, go downtown and party. As long as we had money to do our, you know, our weekends out at the Hamptons, we were fine. You can live that way when you're a young single person. You can dance between the raindrops. Once you get, once you get these things called kids, living in Manhattan, it's not, it's not even just difficult. It's near impossible to live in Manhattan with kids economically, just psychologically. Everybody thinks they're going to be the people that figure it out. I think San Francisco's like that. I don't know if you've spent that much time back there recently. The cost, the congestion. The cost of school, incredible. You're right, congestion. When people say to me, hey, will you come meet with us in San Francisco? It, it takes an act of God. I, I uh, you know, obviously, I, I, clearly you're a professor. I, I had a wonderful opportunity recently to speak at the, um, Babson has an entrepreneurial MBA thing they do yep. in San Francisco. And so um, uh, my buddy, Bruce Cleveland, who you might know from Wildcat Ventures, yep. great new book out. Um, anyway, blah, blah, yada, yada, invited me to come speak at this thing. And, you know, it'd been a while since I'd been up in the city and ended at like five o'clock or whatever. And I was like, fuck all of this. I can't, I drove down highway one. I was like, there's construction and there's hassle and hee haw. And it's a pain in the ass living in San Francisco. Yeah. It's these cities are optimized for young people who want to work all the time and go out, have, you know, get drunk and then can muscle through the hangover the next day because there's a density of opportunity and fun, but the cost, the lifestyle in your non-work hours, it's just, it's pretty high. And as you get older, you start focusing on quality of life and you can't live in a one bedroom with two other guys when you start having kids. It's just, <laughs> so look, you, you got to get there. I say to everybody, get there now. And that's one of the reasons that, um, uh, finally, or, you know, it, positively some way, negatively, and some others that women, young, young women are blowing past young men because young women seem to be more comfortable moving to the city. Whereas a lot of guys kind of, if you will, stay on the farm. And the result is we have a lot of men who aren't, who are falling behind. You know, a lot of people, you, you read these headlines, young men are failing. Um, but it's, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's no doubt about it. One of the key equations in economic success and economic success, no getting around it as a key contributor to happiness is getting to the right zip code. Yeah. Now you also talk a lot about that. It doesn't make a good commencement speech, but the reality is if you want to be successful, you're going to spend 20 years working your ass off. I'm paraphrasing things I think I've heard you say, but can you open that one up for me a little bit? And I, I then want to go to all of these, I call them entrepreneurial porn stars and this bullshit that's being spewed on particularly younger people. But tell me about this 20 years of hard work, professor. Yeah. The, the emerging industry of struggle porn. So uh, I call it the myth of balance and that is on TV shows. And we all know probably one person like this who, is successful, great at what they do, good relationships, uh, an awesome boyfriend or girlfriend, has a food blog, and, and donates time to the ASPCA on weekends. Assume you are not that person. Assume that, and also is following their passion. And the, the, the most, one of the more dangerous things I think that happens in colleges right now is if I go to a luncheon speaker and it's sort of a billionaire's parade at NYU of luncheon speakers. I would say probably a third of the people who speak at, you know, luncheon speakers are billionaires. And typically the standard epilogue or the sign off is do what you love or follow your passion. And typically the person on stage who's a billionaire telling you to follow your passion made their billions in iron ore smelting. And the notion that this person was passionate about this is just such bullshit. 
What most of us are passionate about is finding something we're good at, getting great at it. And once you become great at something, the financial and psychological and emotional accoutrements that come with being great at something will make you passionate around whatever it is. There are tax accountants that are billionaires, millionaires, making great living, supporting their families. And they are passionate, if you will, about making a good living, being good at something, getting the respect of their peers, being invited to conferences, getting to live a nice lifestyle, a nice lifestyle, having a broader selection set of mates that are more attractive and more interesting than they are because of their, because of their professional success. That's what people get passionate about. Telling people to follow their passion is somewhat dangerous because what that connotes is the notion that if something gets hard, if it becomes real work, if you fail at it or, or you, you run up against obstacles or you don't love it or you're starting to think, wow, this is tough, it's easy then to say, well, clearly isn't my passion and I should move on because it's not coming easy to me. It shouldn't come easy to you. It's called work. And then passion generally connotes a series of industries where the unemployment rate is about 99%, whether it's sports or opening a nightclub or going to work for Vogue magazine. And my viewpoint is there are ways to make money in all those things, but you better be prepared for the notion that your return on investment, your hard work, your psychic energy is going to be lower than the guy that goes to work in a non-sexy industry. And this translates to my investment philosophy. If it sounds cool, I don't get near it. A friend of mine is opening a members-only club focused on music and artists downtown. Sounds amazing. I want to be a member. I will not invest. Another friend of mine is starting a SaaS-based healthcare as a maintenance, healthcare maintenance scheduling company. Boom, I'm investing. Sounds like, to me, that company sounds like I'd want to stick a gun in my mouth working there. It sounds awful. That's where the money is because like any asset class, the returns are based on the investments that go in. So everybody buying Florida real estate in 2006 means the returns are going to be shoved down. 2011, no one wants Florida real estate. That means the returns are going to be higher. Going into industries where there's a dearth of human capital investment means higher returns. Everybody wants to work for Vogue. Everybody wants to be in the movie business. So just recognize you better get a lot of psychic income because your return is going to be lower than your friends who decide to go to work in less sexy industries. Return on investment is inversely correlated to sex appeal. Stop this notion of balance. I'm not saying don't work out. I'm not saying don't try and invest in relationships. I'm not saying don't call your mom. But the majority, the vast majority of successful people found something they're good at and then spent 10,000 hours getting great at it. And it's just like you, my 20s and 30s, I don't remember much else than working. And I have a lot of balance now but it's a function of the fact I didn't have a ton in my 20s and 30s because I was yes. very focused on economic security. Yeah, me too. I mean, I essentially took almost no time off from 18 to 38. And at 38, woke up and went, okay, time for something different. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's uh, time for breath, right? Yeah. Now, I'm curious uh, about this, this. So, number one. And I want to focus on men here for a sec, if I could, because you, you speak a lot about this. And, and I do, based on everything I've learned, it looks like we have a crisis emerging with men, young men in particular. So here's what I've seen. And I'm curious what your research and what you see. As a man, somewhere between, you tell me, 20 and 50, somewhere in there, uh, for you to be, and I'm going to put this in the context of happiness, for you to be happy. That is to say, generally get up in the morning, generally be looking forward to things, generally appreciate things, have a good time, laugh, feel like you matter, feel like others matter to you. you know, good old-fashioned, real no-bullshit happiness, not Instagram happiness. So mm -hmm. for that to be true as a man, what I have seen is the men that I know who, who to your point, apply themselves pretty pretty seriously to some kind of a chosen path. I couldn't agree with you more. This passion thing is complete bullshit. I wanted to kiss you for saying it. Fuck that. That's why the podcast is called Follow Your Different, not Follow Your Passion. Uh, it's stupid advice. But the, the, for, to, for a man to be successful, he generally has to become viewed by others as achieving some level of mastery at what he does, whether he's a carpenter or a tech entrepreneur or whatever he is. And that can generally make a good living 
Mm-hmm. He generally gets his shit handled financially, emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, if that's a thing for him. He generally has his key relationships handled. He's in a relationship with a good partner. Um, to your point on kids, he's generally a responsive, uh, responsible, committed kind of a dad. Um, and he's generally what I would call a 360-degree person. But there, well, there's a core piece of it, which is achieves a level of uh, respect, mastery, and financial success somewhere between 20 and 50 and and has the associated personal and you know internal and external acknowledgments around that and that mm-hmm. men who don't achieve that if they don't get there somewhere between 40 and 50 maybe 60 bad shit starts happening as they realize they didn't make that happen but mm-hmm. That's been my experience, and it's been the things that I have educated myself on, but I'm not the professor, and I'm not the guy who just wrote a book about this shit. So I'm curious, how does your sort of research and anecdotal uh, insights sort of triangulate with that, and, and what have you seen? So again, I'm, I'm quoting other people's uh, research. Jonathan Hyde, a colleague here at NYU, uh, the Harvard Grand Study, Blue Zone's a great book about this, but there's no doubt about it. There's you know, you could argue that men are failing. Most of the, a lot of the data is like, well, men are sort of flatlining in terms of some of the key indicators, especially young men, and women are accelerating, which is a good thing. Now, some of the multidimensional, what you would call 360, what I've found is that women are expected to be wonder women. They're expected to be, uh, have a career. They're expected to be nice. You know, men are expected to be nice. That's not a key attribute of attractiveness or success in a man that he's a nice guy. Women are expected to be nice. They're expected to have maternal instincts. They're expected to be hot. I believe first and foremost, in most places, unfortunately, the women are evaluated on their looks. Uh, I think women are expected to be very multidimensional. Men are expected to be rich. Uh, At the end of the day, I think a guy in our capitalist society is for the most part evaluated pretty much 60, 70, 80% based on his economic success. Now, there's, there's professional relevance. If someone is a politician, if someone is a great artist and not making a lot of money, that can substitute for it. But all deficiencies in a man are wallpapered over if he's killing it financially. And, and, and you know, we are, we are expected to go out and kill the fucking wildebeest and bring it home. And that's our job. We're supposed to be providers. And when you're, when you're strong economically, you're signaling to women that you can take care of their young. You have an Amex Centurion card. It means that their offspring are more likely to survive than if you pay for dinner using a Discover card. Men who can signal strength vis-a-vis professional and economic success are respected, have a much broader selection set of mates, and are generally a little, a little happier. And men are failing on this level. 70% of high school valedictorians are girls. So you have girls maturing earlier and being recognized for their professional discipline and success. Whereas before men, if you were just kind of a white guy with outdoor plumbing in America, after the capital infrastructures of the most productive economies in the world, specifically Japan and Germany got leveled, and the fourth largest economy in the world was Argentina, we kind of had monopoly power. And monopoly power granted us this extended kind of sexism and racism where white males were successful mostly because, you know, they were given a head start because they were white males. That's no longer the truth. People in other nations are catching up. And women, young girls in the U.S. who study harder, more mature, more measured, harder workers, whether it's their pleasers, whether it's their brain develops earlier, who knows? But in my firm, what I've noticed is, uh, and I've been starting kind of information economy, e-commerce consulting strategy analytics companies, show me a female athlete from a world-class university, and I'll show you someone who's going to be successful at my company. And you don't ever write this down because it's sexist, and we don't ha- you don't have to be a woman. But if you're not a woman, you better be an athlete and have a fantastic education. If, you don't, if you're not an athlete, then we like to hire women with fantastic educations. If you didn't go to a great school, fine, but I like to see that you're a great athlete. But I find those sort of three things, and quite frankly, the signal is female. So you have males who, one, aren't as apt to move to the, where the snow is good, cities. Two, aren't as academically successful uh, early on. 
And so you find they're not as financially successful as now corporations are realizing that they need to figure out the way to tap into this un, unbelievable untapped workforce of women finally. And men are failing economically. A lot of, I think something like two thirds of men, including myself, move home after college. They're not as engaged. They're not as good socially, which is key to happiness. The number of men not having sex under the age of 30 has tripled which is an indicator of how social they are and how many risks they're taking trying to find a mate. And they're not economically as successful relative to other people. Now, what does that do? That makes them less attractive in many ways to women because women have been brought up to believe that they're supposed to pair or mate with a guy who's more economically successful than them. And that's getting increasingly hard to find because fortunately, and for a lot of good reasons, women are killing it. So you have this perfect storm of kind of an identity crisis, specifically among white males who growing up saw their white male father and thought, he's killing it, I should be killing it. And for the first time, I think in the history of the US, 30 year olds are not doing as well as their parents were at 30. And then it bifurcates. Women are actually doing okay, but guys are really, really struggling. I also believe that uh, you know, the economy is so demanding and there's so much shitty food out there. There's so much fast food thrown in your face. I think men are happiest when they're around people and when they're sweating or really active. I think that we are, we have for a long time been prone to as a survival instinct and feeling rewarding, being very decisive and very violent and killing things. And I think, it, I think that men who exercise and sweat as a function of their everyday activity as young men, tend to be happier. And I worry that that's not as big a part of men's lives because they can basically figure out a way to not have any exercise, eat trans fats foods. Now, you know, all the stuff that was hard to find, sugary stuff, salty stuff, meats, all the thing that was hard to find uh, as a species for most of, our, most of our existence on this planet has now been institutionalized in terms of cheap production and our instincts haven't caught up to it. And we're, we're taking in way too much of that. So we have obesity, we have bad food and a lack of exercise and also just a lack of economic success. I do think we have kind of a crisis among young men. Well, and they don't appear on any dimension to be any, this is maybe an overstatement, but let me say it anyway. Anything that we recognize as fucking men. And, you know, this may not make me that popular, but you and I are here because our ancestors were good at farming, fighting, and fucking, right? <laughs> That's what in that, in that order. Well, <laughs> and not at the same time. Well, yeah, well, if you could do it all at the same time, you're something else. But you know, yeah. you got to be able to provide for yourself and your family. Farming. Yeah. You got to be able to defend yourself and make sure nobody fucks with your family, fucks with your food, fucks yeah. with your community. And you know, obviously, we're wired to procreate. Um, yeah. and w w some of us are really wired for it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, and, and yet we have these, these 25 to 35 year old dudes who aren't involved with anything that remotely looks like, you know, there's this whole emerging thing that competition is bad and, you know, everybody gets a trophy and a cookie and all that bullshit that's been going on for a long time. And, and to your point, look, I find it shocking that reasonably good sounding schools give full academic scholarships for this new category called um, e-sports athlete. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm overly simplistic, but, you know, I trained this morning. If I don't train, if I'm not physically active, plus or minus five days a week, if I don't get to the gym, if I don't surf, if I don't do something, my fucking bipolar insanity starts to go off. I get angry. I get mad. My wife says, would yeah. you fuck off and go surfing or would you go hit a bag? You know, I like martial arts. Like you, And if I fall off the wagon for two weeks or I'm injured or whatever it is, I become this other person that I don't really like. And yet we don't talk much about this physical part and that the reality is this, this natural urge to farming, fucking, and fighting, to your point, has been essentially negated today and these these young male things that they're just they're, they're I don't know what they are they don't look like anything I understand as a man yeah I yeah it's I mean farming fucking and fighting it's that's like the script it's the script of Highlander but let's start with farming your ability I think as a as a man as a young man you should take responsibility 
responsibility for the economic sustenance of a household. And in that, that sounds like, that sounds very sexist. Now, sometimes taking responsibility for that is acknowledging that your spouse is better at this whole money thing than you, and you're going to support her. My wife got, uh, or my girlfriend at the time, got a job at Goldman Sachs when I was just a, a kind of an emerging academic and was making more money than me. So I figured out a schedule such that I could bathe the kids at night and make sure that, that, that we had childcare in play. I took you know, a little bit more responsibility than I would otherwise, which was still probably lacking on the, on, on the scale because I think I, you know, growing up in kind of 70s Southern California watching I Dream a Genie two hours a day. But being, being a man is saying, okay, I'm responsible for the economic livelihood of this household. And I'm going to work on, you know, I'm going to get going on something. I'm not going to allow myself to be unemployed very long, even if it means lowering my bar in terms of the job I'm going to take. I think there's a real dignity and real satisfaction from farming, as you call it. And then that is diving in and working and getting things done. Um, what you refer to as fucking, look, the, the, going back to happiness, the key, you know, we're told for, for millions of years that our job as males is to spread our seed. Now, that comes with a cost. That's a complicated issue. But being engaged, or the most important decision any man's going to make, is not what career he chooses, where he decides to live. The most important decision a man makes, and I think this is true of women, but I'm looking at this through the lens of a man, is who you're going to partner with the rest of your life, specifically your spouse. And putting yourself out there, being aggressive, taking risks, taking chances, talking to someone at a bar when it's uncomfortable, getting rejected, asking your friend to, if they know people, going to stupid shit that you don't want to go to when you'd rather stay home is such that you might meet somebody, you know, taking the first step, holding somebody's hand, leaning in and kissing them, of course, when it's appropriate. But taking the first step, I do think that, that men have a place in terms of being what I'll call not the aggressor, but the initiator of physical contact when it's, when it's you know, obviously being very careful that it's welcome, never in a professional setting, I would, I would, I would also argue. But it's funny, sweating. I, I hate to interrupt you, uh, Professor, but I remember when the whole Me Too thing was really taking off. I think it was Sarah Silverman. It was definitely a female comic. And, you know, the Louis C.K. thing came out, how he liked to expose himself and all this. There's all this weird behavior that men participate in. And, and I remember, I think it was Sarah who said, um, hey, guys, if we want to see your penis, you'll know. Yeah, you'll figure it out. And we Mich- send very Michelle clear Wolf. signals, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and Michelle, Michelle Wolf is a, a great but very vulgar uh, comedian. She's like, just tell me I'm thin. I'll ask you to jerk off. Anyways. The, 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 <laughs> but the notion, I mean, I mean, some of this stuff is just so over the court, you know, when did jerking off into a potted plant become a theme? Some of this behavior is just so off the charts bad. And a lot of these people should go to prison. It's an overdue conversation, but the problem is we don't calibrate it. And, and a friend of mine will call me and say, I'm going on a date tonight. Da, da, da. I, have, I have a lot of young kids I'm sort of coaching and I'll say, where should I take her? I'm like, well, I'll take her here. And I'm like, but tonight you need to, you need to, when it's appropriate, you need to initiate affection. You need to grab her hand. You need to kiss her. And she'll, it'll be clear whether she's receptive to it or not. And someone who doesn't want to hold your hand or someone who doesn't want to kiss you back, that's okay. That's part of life as long as you're respectful, as long as you don't make it awkward. Um, but I do believe that there is a role for men and this masculine attribute of being aggressive and initiating contact I think when women are in a social place, they don't want, they want you to come up and initiate the conversation. And I'd, some women have outstanding masculine attributes or social and will initiate that conversation. I find that most don't. And at the end of the day, distinctive we're reading the headlines, appreciate a man who takes control and initiates conversation, initiates signs of affection, uh, even if it's not a direct route to sex. So this notion that I think men are struggling, young men are struggling with what is appropriate and, and are a bit confused. I think that's a bit of a cop-out. I think a lot of them just lack the confidence. You know, nothing wonderful. I, ta- I tell this story in my class. I met my wife at the pool at the Raleigh Hotel. It was the middle of the day, the sun blaring down. She was with another woman and a guy. And I looked at her and I thought, I, as God is my witness, before I leave this pool today, I'm going to speak to that woman. And I walked up in the full heat of sun, 
most importantly, without alcohol, which has always been a great confidence builder for me. And I started talking to her. And it was at the Raleigh Hotel in Miami. It was wildly uncomfortable for me. The first five minutes were very awkward. But, you know, headline news, 11 years later, my oldest son's middle name is Raleigh. Nothing wonderful, nothing wonderful is going to happen to you unless you take an uncomfortable risk. And that's true of business. It's true of personal relationships. And it's true of mating. You have to decide, do I want, if you're never going to take a risk, you are going to punch below your weight class. Someone else who take risks is going to punch up and find you as a mate. And that's going to be your weight class. If you want to punch up, if you want an outstanding mate who want a risk adjusted scorecard, you look at it and think, you know what? This person just scores higher than me. I am so blessed to have this person in my life. You are going to have to take an uncomfortable risk. And I think a lot of men or young men are using excuses around the Me Too movement and not knowing who they are, et cetera. No, you're the dude. Get out there. Start swinging at the plate. You're going to get beamed in the face a couple of times. Fine. Learn from it. Get back up and start swinging again. But uh, you know, your, your, your success is a willingness of your ability to endure failure. Yes. I was really on a soapbox there. No, but I, absolutely. And part of that is, is be a fucking man. Suck it up, buttercup. You're right. Walk up to that gal at the pool and take the risk of her telling you to go shove it or whatever she might say if she was not interested. If you, to your point on holding her hand, if you think she's sending a signal and you kind of gently reach over and you go to hold her hand and she reacts negatively, well, then you fucking learn something, didn't you? You figure it out. Yeah. You okay. Next. Out, right. <laughs> right. Uh, go to the fucking dance and be the guy who walks across the room and ask the like, grow a set 100%. of fucking testicles and try 100%. something. And to your point yeah. in your career, you know, I talk to young people all the time, how to have a legendary career, take the hardest job, take the hardest opportunity, put yourself in the most uncomfortable situation and fucking go for it. Right. Um, yeah. and, and somehow we have, if we get back to this topic of happiness, we have confused comfort and happiness and rarely do. Th and look, I love comfort, but the things that make us truly happy, rarely are they things that are comfortable. Yeah, it's, it's true. Even I think one of the keys, one of the kind of what I'll call hacks around happiness is deadlines. I have a self-imposed deadline. I write a blog and every Friday I have in the morning an animator expecting draft of it, a, an editor, a proofreader. People think I'm doing this all myself. It's a kind of a village of people. And inevitably Thursday night at 2 a.m. I'm trying to bang out something about my family or about Lyft's IPO. And it's, it's a massive amount of stress. And if I didn't have this monkey on my back called a deadline, I wouldn't do it. So deadlines and productivity, and the thing about writing, I don't know if you found this, there is nothing, nothing that kind of haunts you like a book or writing deadlines. It is just, like, it just opening your computer and saying, okay, I'm going to write a chapter on Google. And other than having done some searches, I don't even know what to say here. And then telling your publisher who's giving you an advance, you got to have this thing in in two weeks. It is, it is incredibly stressful. But when you have that chapter done, when you have that book done, when you have that, you know, my blog, No Mercy, No Malice, when I send it out and I start getting comments back, it's very rewarding. And it's, it's, it gives you a sense of I have immortalized myself. I've done something. I've checked a box. I've done something really hard. I've invested in something that takes some time to produce, a lot of stress, a lot of other people, a lot of professionalism. But when it comes out, I feel immortal. I feel strong. You know, I'm swinging on vines. I, I feel, you know, strong like bulls, so to speak. So deadlines, making sure that you produce stuff, making sure you put things out there, subjecting yourself to public opinion around things. Uh, you know, this stuff is, it's, it's hard, but it's, uh, but it's, it's incredibly rewarding. Amen. Hallelujah. Now, I want to be super respectful of your time. There's one other thing I did want to touch on and anything else, of course, you want to touch on, Professor. We sort of uh, touched it a little bit. I have a tremendous amount of disdain for these entrepreneurial hustle porn stars. Um, and I could tell you why if you care. But uh, in a lot of ways, you are the opposite of Grant Cardone or Gary Vee or Ty Lopez or, you know, I, I, these, I, I'm just going to call them what I think they are, these idiots. 
And so I, I wonder how you think about this. You're a very public person. You're a very social media savvy person. You have a very high profile in this regard. And I think the downside of these entrepreneurial porn stars is they've taught a lot of young people um, that to be successful, this is what you have to do. You have to puke out the stupidity on Instagram and, you know, you have to self-aggrandize yourself and, and, and spew out, you know, what I think is mostly garbage. And yet you're somebody who is, by contrast, in my opinion, very substantive, but who is also winning in this new social media world where people think you have to be this 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 candy, where in point of fact, for the most part, you've made um, you've made your profile profile serving up steak. How do you think about that? Oh, well, you, you're being generous. So I, I know all the guys you talked about and I, I try to learn from them. I'm in some ways I'm inspired by them because they're fearless. They put themselves out there. I was with Gary Vee. I was on the speaking circuit in Northern Europe one spring where they have these kind of Super Bowl events where they invite everyone from Tony Hawk to Gary Vee to, and I'm, it's either me or Adam Grant. Whenever they want an academic, I always find it's an Adam's, Adam's a rock star in my world. He's from the, from, uh, the Wharton School and is doing some amazing research. And we all kind of got to know each other a little bit. And Gary would have a camera following him around and then just post little snippets of his life. And I respect the fact how aggressive and brave he's doing with that. But I see some of that stuff, you know, close-ups of him in a meeting or these other guys. And I just want to shower. And I think it's kind of a generational thing. You know, I've tried to say, okay, how do you, how do you create work that has rigor? Like, as opposed to posting 50 things a week, could you post one or two and do some research and some rigor and get some other talented people involved? to try and make it substantive or different, like kind of do the work, if you will. And for me, that's, that's been rewarding and it's worked out. The notion that you have to be miserable as a young person, I'm, and I'm the first to say the myth of balance, you got to work hard, but the notion that you have to be miserable. I was listening to one of the people you were talking about saying, offer to go to work for free, just going like, I'm like, well, you know what? Most people don't have that option. Most people's parents aren't putting them through publishing. They don't, they can't work for free. And the notion that you got to be miserable. And then the other one I don't like is never give up. Never give up. Yeah, there's a time to give up. You need a kitchen cabinet, cabinet of people on your shoulder, especially as a young person. I was too insecure to, to acknowledge this, but the wisdom of crowds is this powerful dynamic. And you should have a group of three or four or five people. You know, one can be your dad or your mom, but you need some people who know you but aren't too emotionally invested in you. So they'll give you straightforward advice. And when you've been starting a company and you're two, three years into it and it's just not working, all the stories, all the romance is around the person who wouldn't give up and then succeeds. Well, you know what? Sometimes the best thing you can do is to give up and move on. And there's a balance and you need people to advise you when you need to, you need to kind of persevere through obstacles. But at the same time, just banging your head over and over again, you know, I've had a lot of businesses fail. The best thing that can happen is success. The second best thing that can happen is you fail fast. The things that have really hurt me professionally is when I started coming to go Red Envelope, an e-commerce company. It took me 10 years to fail and to lose $3 million personally. I started an e-commerce incubator backed by Goldman Sachs and Howard Schultz from Starbucks and JP Morgan. And it was an absolute failure, but it failed in 12 months. And that was a blessing. So this notion that we need to be miserable, that you should go to work for free. You know, most of these guys- Embrace the grind, professor. Yeah, it's just so, it's like, look, sacrifice, but to the point where there's an ROI, don't be, I used to do this when I started a company, I used to stay till midnight every night because I felt like if I was punishing myself, the universe would listen and be more inclined to make me successful. And guess what? The universe is indifferent. So get all your work done by eight and head home and spend time with your family and still work into eight. If you work a 12 or 14 hour day, that's plenty okay, work a half day on Saturday, but take Sunday off. And quite frankly, if you need to work seven days a week for longer than a year, it's a signal that business just doesn't work. Because most successful businesses, the people aren't. So startup, yeah, work really hard. But this notion that it's meant to be a travel, you know, it's meant to be Shackleton going through the Antarctica. It's just dangerous and leads to a lot of, a lot of I think, unhealthy places. And then finally, just to wrap up, the, the one thing the the, the 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 most significant study the most robust study on happiness the long, most a longitudinal study tracked eight four hundred young men 
uh, age 19, they picked 400 men. And this gives you a sense, it was 1929. This gives you a sense of how sexist we were back then. Nobody cared about women's happiness. They decided that the biggest study on happiness would just be about dudes. So they got 400 men, age 19, different backgrounds economically, different educational backgrounds, and it's called the Harvard Grant Study. And they studied them, they've tracked them for 80 years. Everything from their facial features, their body mass index, the how, how far down their scrotum hang, how fast their nails grew, and they, their economics, their relationships with substances, you know, all these different things, where they live, their house, the car they own, their spouse, how many times they had sex, their media they consumed. And then every week they would ask them a series of questions around satisfaction, how happy they were. And they, they had to go through, I think, four or five principal scientists because the scientists kept dying because it's single on 80 years. Finally, the last of the 400 dies at the age of 99. And they spent three years analyzing all this data. And it's just such a wonderful study because they said that hands down, hands down, the strongest indicators of happiness were very simple. And that was the depth and meaning of relationships you had. At work, do you feel respected and admired? And do you respect and admire other people? In your relationships with your family, do you feel loved and supported? And just as importantly, do you get the sense they feel loved and supported by you? With your friends, do you feel a sense of joy and camaraderie with your friendships? And just as importantly, do you sense they get joy and camaraderie free from you? The depth and number of your relationships across professional, with your mate and your family, and with your friends was hands down the strongest indicator of happiness. And it's got the most wonderful opening line of an academic study, which tend to be very dry, very verbose. But the first line of uh, summarizing the largest study of its kind on happiness said, said, happiness is love, full stop. And it's a wonderful study. And it really is. That is, that is the key that is the key to happiness. Get economic security so you can ensure that you can manage those relationships, have experiences. But that one thing, if you can manage to get to that thing, you're going to be just fine. And then on the flip side, they also identified the number one source or signal of men who were less happy. I'll ask you, what do you think it is? What was the one thing prevalent most often in people who weren't happy? Well, I've done some cheating, so I think I've heard you say this before. Is it yeah. alcohol? It's alcohol. And this is weird, and this is me saying, do as I say, not as I do. I love to drink. I love to and drink, too. I heard you say this, and I was listening to this, and I'm like, yeah, yeah I, love I to get drink. if you drink so much that you can't be yeah. uh, you know, functional and all that. But, yeah. Professor, I, I, I have a beer at the end of the day. I love Scott. Uh -huh. I don't get hammered every night, but I have yeah. two or three drinks most nights. Yeah, I'm okay. Let me be clear. I'm 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 the same way, and I'm you know uh, I'm uh, 100. And I, I believe like personally, I've modeled and believe the same as Winston Churchill, and that is I've gotten more out of alcohol than it's gotten out of me. It Amen. is it is an, <laughs> it has enhanced my life. But the science is that when they looked at men whose whose life had come off the tracks, bad health, divorce, professional uh, tumult. The indicator, the thing in their life that was most prevalent was alcohol. And I think the key is obviously moderation. And I think there's periods in your life where you need to have an honest assessment of what is the role that substances play in your life and is it getting in the way of your professional trajectory or your relationships. And the weird thing is the thing that is sort of a distraction or an illusionist trick is we have this image or the stereotype of someone who's struggling with substances being someone who's homeless, living in Central Park, mugging people. And the reality is the vast majority of people who struggle with substances are functioning alcoholics, they're functioning drug users, they're at work, they're making a living, they're getting by. When I first moved to New York, I was 22, I was immature, and I was just drinking every night. I was just going out to very cool places in New York, getting fucked up with people who I also thought was interesting. It helped me meet people. And then the next day, I was hungover, just trying to get an hour of sleep under a conference tail, eat greasy food such that for a one-hour period in between 2 and 3 p.m., I'd inevitably get a call from someone saying, hey, we're parting downtown at the tunnel with a bunch of models, and I'd agree to go out again. And alcohol, for me, made me sort of not only a mediocre banker, but a mediocre person. I didn't invest as much in relationships. 
I kind of lost contact with a little bit too much with my parents. And I was just sort of not great at what I did because I was constantly kind of nursing a, a hangover and felt like I had a chemo blast every day. So I think young people need to, if you will, take stock if they're unhappy of their relationship with substances. And if it is getting in the way of their professional success, if it is getting in the way of their relationships, address it early. But I want to I finish where I started. Depth and number of meaningful relationships is the key. I love it. And one thing on the alcohol and the exercise, the thing that saves me is uh, I need to be able to drink so that tomorrow morning I can surf or I at or my eight o'clock boxing class, I'm going to feel good at. Right. So to me, the physical piece actually helps with the drinking piece, because uh, luckily I like the physical more than the drinking. And if I go too overboard on the drinking, I'm going to suck tomorrow morning in the water. It's a regulator. Yeah, it's not that, that 8 a.m. workout when you've had four beers instead of two, you definitely feel it. And all right, I don't know about you, but I used to work out through any pain. I rode crew in college. Now, if I'm not feeling it, I skip workouts and I sleep in. And, you know, it's part of the reason that I look the way I do, unfortunately. But, yeah, you just don't get, you're just not, at least me, I'm not as, I'm not as, I'm not as disciplined as I, as I used to be. Well, Professor, I want to thank you for writing this book. It's a great um, non sequitur. I also think that, you know, you stand um, in a unique place in this world with a lot of these kind of P.T. Barnum bullshit guys that we sort of talked about. And, uh, you know, I, I really admire the fact that you've been able to do very substantive things and be successful at it without turning yourself into one of these porn stars. I think it's really laudable. <laughs> well, thanks. And, and right back at you. Congratulations on, on the podcast. My I, I get and I'm bragging now, I get invited probably to do 10 or 15 of these a week. And I always, I was throw it over the wall to the woman who handles my PR. And I say, I just put one word on my diligence. And she wrote back, she said, Oh no, this guy's the real deal. You got to do this. So congratulations <laughs> on whatever got you to be the real deal. But you're, I was told to do this hands down. I, I'm with Penguin Portfolio Random House, my publisher. They're like, Oh no, this guy's the real deal. I'm so glad they feel that way. And, you know, one of the greatest joys of my life, I didn't know this, the podcast a little bit over two years old, but, I, you know, I didn't think that far forward. But the joy of somewhere along the line, we made it onto those lists that your PR folks and Penguin and others sort of say, hey, this is this is one of the ones you got to go do. And so I now get this joy called uh, Scott Galloway's PR people pitch me you. And I like read the email and go, hmm, should we have them on? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it was like when Ken Blanchard's PR people got the email. We'd love to propose Ken Blanch uh, Ken Blanchard. Are you fucking kidding? And so it's been this probably the greatest single accomplishment, if I could call it that, was this place where, you know, amazing folks, uh, the the PR folks and publishing folks around amazing folks like you, um, email yeah. a douchebag like me. But I really there appreciate you, you saying that. Um, anything else before we wrap, Professor? No, congratulations on living in Santa Cruz. Good for you. Oh, my God. I love it. And uh, I'd love it. I know you get out to the West Coast from time to time. And uh, uh, if you have a little bit of time and the drive isn't going to kill you, I'd love to welcome you here. And uh, uh, we could enjoy a little bit of Santa Cruz together and, and maybe uh, maybe knock over a nice West Coast IPA. There you go. That's a, that's a, That's a great offer. I'll take you up on that. Thank you, Professor. Take care. Have a great day. Thanks. There he is, Professor Scott Galloway. I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Now, it's, um, if it's grow time, it's no time. And the way you know what's going on with your business is to stay on top of your metrics and your numbers so that you can grow. And that's where my friends at NetSuite come in. Go to netsuite.com different. And while you're there, as a listener to this podcast, you'll be able to set up a free growth review with an expert in your industry. Now, NetSuite's been a pioneer in digital commerce since 1998. As a matter of fact, they're a category queen, uh, queen or king, however you want to think about it, in the space. They provide an e-commerce solution uh, that's what you could think of as unified e-commerce. It connects with your back office. And today, NetSuite powers thousands of online businesses, helping them grow. With NetSuite, you can design the experience that you want for your brand. You can transform your digital store into a continuous shopping experience by unifying online, in-store, uh, so you can have online and offline buying experiences uh, that are seamless and that are awesome. And NetSuite allows you to execute a digital commerce experience 
on any device. Their website design capabilities allow you to create uh, device-optimized online shopping experiences that display elegantly across all the different types of mobile devices like smartphones, tablets, and of course, laptops and desktops. With NetSuite, you have one platform instead of maintaining multiple fragmented systems to deliver a powerful, unified e-commerce experience. So if you want to know your numbers and you want to power your growth, check out my friends at netsuite.com slash different. Now, if you want to get a hold of us, uh, feel free to send email to blackhole at lockhead.com. From time to time, I'll do a Q&A episode. Uh, if you want to check out my uh, week social media game, you can find me at Lockhead with two H's on both Twitter and Instagram. All right. We would like to thank our guest today, Scott Galloway, and his amazing new book, The Algebra of Happiness, Notes on the Pursuit of Success, Love, and Meaning, available now. Our good friends at OneLifeFullyLived.org. And um, why not check out one, the number one, LifeFullyLived.org slash Lockhead. And while you're there, you will learn about our new conference, October 12th and 13th, 2019, in beautiful Long Beach, California. And uh, this is a family affair. You can bring the entire family. And there's uh, lots of fun and engaging things for people of all ages to learn how to uh, dream, plan, and live uh, your best life. Now, if you're a growth-oriented person, entrepreneur, check out growwire.com. This is an awesome new content site with uh, articles, uh, a YouTube channel, a podcast, and much more. Check out growwire.com. Now, uh, are you feeling a little overwhelmed? Maybe it's time to bring in some help from the good people at Bottleneck Virtual Assistance. Check out bottleneck.online and get back the most powerful thing we have, which is time. Now, are you a leader? Are you looking to drive a breakthrough in thinking and leadership across your organization? Then why not check out my friends at Flourishing Leadership Institute at lead, the number two, flourish.com. The most forward-leaning companies in Silicon Valley and beyond turn to Flourishing Leadership Institute for breakthrough approaches to bringing people together, having powerful conversations, looking at powerful questions to drive a breakthrough in the leadership of your organization. I also remind you that our new friend, Dushka Zapata, our new friend, <laughs> excuse me, our longtime friend and most regular guest, Dushka Zapata, has a new book out and it's, it's fantastic. Check it out. It's called You Belong Everywhere and Other Things You'll Have to See for Yourself. I also want to shout out to the amazing folks at the Front Row Foundation. They help people with life-threatening conditions and diseases have an experience they will never forget, a life-altering experience. And uh, I've been a part of this organization for a while. I've helped sponsor these kinds of experiences. And I'll tell you, when you give somebody who is staring down um, the scariest situation you can imagine an opportunity to do something they never thought they'd be able to do, it's a pretty powerful thing. Check out frontrowfoundation.org. All right, I need to remind you that this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain disturbed. Uh, we must tell you that this podcast was clearly produced in a studio that does contain nuts and is produced by the uh, legendary Jamie J and edited by Sarah Parrish and Mike D. Don't forget to tell two people you love about two podcasts you love. Don't be lame. Get out of the passing lane. Did you know that there are states in America where it's actually illegal to go slowly in the left-hand lane? Uh, don't forget to listen to their moans. If you haven't changed your mind lately, how do you know you have one? Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Greg Clark, former CEO of Symantec. Sorry, Greg, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with me. Um, it really means the world to me that you hang out. And uh, stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your different. <laughs>